55% of invertebrates will lose their climatic range, 55% of insects, and the whole ecosystem we live in depend on them, 50% of plants, 27% of mammal, and 380 million people will be exposed to annual flooding. Those are big numbers. Louisiana and New Orleans have a lot of skin in the game in creating resilient technologies for the future. They benefit enormously from the rivers and ocean, but they, they also have huge threats coming from that water, right? And so they have really a compelling case for becoming a pole for innovation in technologies associated with resilience and associated with the sustainable use of water resources. And it's not just the ocean, it's the ocean, it's the Mississippi River, it's the Lake Pontchartrain, it's the whole ecosystem of water that you had for centuries and have learned to manage very well. Welcome to the Blue Economy Primer, a New Orleans-based podcast where you learn from the experts, the practical tools and solution sets that will empower your community to adapt and thrive in a new blue era of rising seas and economic discontinuity. Special thanks to the Dan Lucas Memorial Foundation and the Pontchartrain Conservancy for their financial and institutional support of Deep Blue Academy's education and research initiatives. Today we are speaking with an energy transition leader with over 25 years of global experience in operational excellence, supply chain, and sustainable transformations. In the course of her impressive international career in the energy industry, she was also a longtime resident of New Orleans. Esme, thank you so much for joining us on the Blue Economy Primer podcast. Thank you, Greg. Thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast. The work you're doing on the blue economy encompasses everything I'm passionate about. So it's really wonderful to be here. Thank you. I appreciate that. Can you introduce yourself to our audience, please? Yeah, sure, Greg. So I, I, I had a fairly long corporate career. Um, all over the world, so in Europe, in the US, and also um, Middle East and Asia, and work for large companies, oil companies. And lately, I decided to work full-time in the energy transition and set up my own business, Cyclist Transform. I now live in the Netherlands and work full-time as an independent consultant. Well, I know from getting to know you that uh, it sounds like water has always had a very special meaning and power in your life. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, water has been really central to to my existence since I was a tiny child. Um, my mom was a teacher and she was busy with her work, busy grading homeworks in the afternoon. And often I was full of energy and she couldn't quite manage me. And the only thing that would always work was to put a little bit of water in the bathtub, take me there and leave me there to play. I would pretend I was cleaning it, washing it, or playing with my toys and then floating things, and would just stay quiet for hours playing with the water. And growing up, that has not changed much. Well, I don't play in the bathtub, but even in the choice of where I live right now, you can see water from every window in my house. So I still love being close to water and love everything related to water. And where are you more or less now? And where did you grow up? I grew up in Italy. Um, mostly in big cities. I then moved around the world during my um, career, maybe we touch about it later. Right now I live in Friesland, in the north of the Netherlands. So in a small town, very close to the Iselmere, actually on the Iselmere pretty much, and literally surrounded by water in whichever way I look. Well, I know that you had an incredible career kind of spanning working with uh, large petroleum companies, but then really 
getting into some interesting policy work. Can you tell us about how you evolved from working in the petroleum industry to your current energy transition leadership work? Yeah, I really like the word you chose, which was evolved. And that's exactly how I see it, right? I graduated in physics in Italy, you know, many, many years ago, um, worked there for a while, moved to the US. And then in the early 2000s, I really loved the supply chain space. I was admitted to MIT. And so I had it. I, I graduated uh, with a Master of Engineering in Supply Chain and Logistics there. When I was finishing my studies at MIT, by pure chance, I interviewed with a large international oil company and was hired. I didn't intentionally move into that industry, but once there, I found it very fascinating. And I worked in the US, first in Houston, um, first on classic supply chain problems, then on technology strategy. Then I started moving internationally. So I moved to the Netherlands first. Then I had assignments in Qatar and Kazakhstan. And these were assignments in mega projects, incredibly interesting, frontline work, a lot of optimization, maintenance, the, the fundamental of how works is done. And it's super critical knowledge and, and experience then that I'm using now. After that, I moved back to the US to New Orleans, and that was a big love affair for me because it's a beautiful city. It's probably the city I love the most in which I've lived in my life, second to none. After a few years, I was moved back to the Netherlands, and then in 2020, COVID hit, and I think for me, as for many, many, many millions of people, was a period of great disruptions, but also deep, deep, deep reflection. I always have loved nature. I had already done some very important projects in the company related to net zero emission preparedness, reduction of emissions. And so I, I wanted to stay in the space. And I also wanted to educate myself a bit more about the space because my experience was much more on the supply chain and operation side of, of things. And I found out that um, the MIT Sustainability Initiative and Climate Interactive, which is a think tank based in Cambridge in, the, in Massachusetts, they have um, built this simulator called En-ROADS, which is really fascinating and helps understand how climate, energy, and nature work together and how you can shape with action and policies the outcomes of all of that. And I fell in love again for something that was as interesting as supply chain and maybe even more. Um, what I really like about it is that the, all the science is behind the scene and the technology that makes the simulator work, but the simulator itself is super intuitive. So with some of our Deep Blue Institute team, we had the opportunity for you to guide us through the En-ROAD simulator tool, and we were certainly impressed. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you think it's so effective and how it figures into your work? It allows everyone to test their own assumptions on climate and energy and how you can try to limit the temperature increase. And it doesn't require anyone to read a 200 pages article or to digest someone else's opinion. The En-ROAD interface is very simple. It's a single web page, and you will see two charts at the top, typically. These charts are updated in real time every time you try an action or a policy. Underneath the charts, you have a menu of policies and actions you can try. You will have your primary energy sources, so um, renewables, oil, gas, coal, nuclear, and so on. 
you have some policies and actions with which you try to see the impact of changes to the built environment and transport, right? So efficiency, electrifications of both buildings and transport. You have some actions associated with agriculture and industry emissions of other gases like methane. And then you have your removal. So what can we do to take CO2 out of the atmosphere? And this can be natural or technology-based. Every time you test one of the options, right, you see the impact in the energy mix, but you also see the impact in the temperature. And you have a boundary of the climate, um, the Paris Climate Agreement, right? So 1.5 and 2 degrees. And you, in a simulation, you will try to see what policies and action you can perform to get to those boundaries and stay within them. What I find very powerful, again, is that it lets you explore at your own pace. It doesn't try to convince you. It doesn't come with any polarized, politicized vision. And I found that the use what's in a corporate context, even if the tool is global, right, and acts always at the planetary level, if you like, but it's such a trigger and a food for thought that is very effective as a springboard, right? So if a company has to start a sustainability journey, it's a very good springboard to start seeing what the options are, right? You, you start putting things into context. I'm this kind of company, right? And so these are some of the levers actually in this menu that I could use. And these are some of my risks. Oh, these levers apply to these risks. And hey, wait a moment, right? These levers have a lot of impact and we have products that are similar. So maybe we can actually build a business out of it. So I found it very thought provoking and very engaging. Are there any examples that you can give us that are particularly positive or interesting experiences that came out some of some of your En-ROADS work? Many. I think that for a client of mine, I think the entire conversation on afforestation and carbon credit was very interesting. And that is not because afforestation is not important or because carbon credit cannot be actually of good quality and very valuable, which is the case. But because in the context of their own business and industry, that had a negligible impact, right? So they had much more powerful levers they could have pulled, right, to reduce their emissions and improve the performance, the sustainability performance. So are there any key benchmarks or st statistics that crystallize the carbon and climate crisis for you, perhaps related to the inevitable impacts on coastal communities around the world? Yeah, there are some, and indeed, it's what pushed me to do this work. If I look at the way nature will go through this, it's, it's pretty scary. If we don't change our approach, we know that we'll cut into the um, climatic range of many species. 55% of invertebrates will lose their climatic range. 55% of insects and the whole ecosystem we live in depend on them. 50% of plants, 27% of mammal, and 380 million people will be exposed to annual flooding. Those are big numbers and scary ones. Wow. Yeah, that really is scary. So what does the blue economy mean to you? And how do emerging regenerative ocean-based technologies figure into your work and, and future worldview? Yeah, the blue economy is, I think, very important for sustainability and for the future. We had a very opportunistic relationship with oceans, right? We live to the shore of them and we enter into them to exploit resource and then use them. 
And I think the blue economy has truly the power to change this relationship into a symbiosis where we live in the oceans, but we become also the shepherds of the oceans, right? We live in an ecosystem of which we are part, we don't exploit it. And I think it will be absolutely central to the transformation we are going through. It's, it's very important. Oceans cover 70% of the Earth's surface. They help us capture 25% of the carbon um, dioxide, right? And, and create 50% of our oxygen. So they are a completely integral part of our future. So does ocean tech or blue energy play a particular role in your energy transition work? Yes, certainly. And um, uh, especially the renewables energy, right? So if we start looking at um, the plans that U.S. has right now of expanding their offshore wind power, is it's it's revolutionary. It truly is revolutionary. We are talking about 30 gigawatt of power that today is not there. That means huge amount of investment, huge amount of infrastructure, ports, vessels, cable manufacturing, assembly wind turbines, moving them around, creating from scratch a whole supply chain. And I think Louisiana, is such an interesting place, right? They can draw up decades of experience supporting the offshore oil and gas industry. And if anything, I think they are under-evaluated in terms of the contribution they can have to that. Yeah, that's great. So in episode three of our podcast with James Martin of Gulf Wind Technologies, he mentioned Block Island in Rhode Island. So that's one of the communities leading the energy transition in the U.S. with its offshore wind turbines and also, locally, Geno Inc. has hosted a visit to the island as part of its aggressive offshore wind initiatives. So can you talk a little bit more about what you're seeing in this Louisiana uh, energy transition and what the p- potential may be there? I think the potential is certainly there, right? Um, you have already some of the infrastructure, but you you have, even more important, the knowledge of how to manage offshore operations. Um, also, from a different standpoint, not just, I would say, wider standpoint, not just looking at the um, energy generation, but the wider opportunities, right? Uh, Louisiana and New Orleans have a lot of skin in the game in creating resilient technologies for the future. They benefit enormously from the rivers and ocean, but they, they also have huge threats coming from that water, right? And so they have really a compelling case for becoming a pole for innovation in technologies associated with resilience and associated with the sustainable use of water resources. And it's not just the ocean, it's the ocean, it's the Mississippi River, it's the Lake Pontchartrain, it's the whole ecosystem of water that you had for centuries and have learned to manage very well. Building on that, as you know, at Deep Blue Institute and Deep Blue Academy, we're particularly interested in innovation ecosystems. In episode one, Tim Williamson taught us about the New Orleans innovation ecosystem and a bit of history about the new technology development scene here. How do you see the energy transition process playing a role in regenerative blue economy models in the Gulf Coast region? I see a lot of synergies with it, right? Because I think that when we will start to be um, to, to access the sea for 
our energy and have a different relationship with the with the ocean. I think there will be more technologies coming through. It. And if I can bring a, a parallel, right? If I look at, look at the country I live in right now in the Netherlands, right? The the innovation around water management is pervasive, right? So if you look at the past, you still have the system of dikes and locks and and canals, right? That that for, with which the Dutch have managed water for centuries. And all of that is evolving now. Now water management is not just containing water, but living with water that moves, right? And so now there are different approaches. And for example, there is the um, the 30 year plan, the, the, sorry, the room for the river plan, right? Where instead of trying to keep the river in, in its bed, you allow the river to flood the land. And the, the assumption is that every 10 to 12 years, that will happen. And now with that happening, there are the first amphibious homes built. So these are homes that are built for living in a changing environment. So when the plant is dry, the home sits on the bottom. And when it gets flooded, the, the homes have pillars with all the connections and they just simply float. And then when the water recedes, they go back to the bottom, right? So even in their approach to living on the water, the Dutchess are innovating and engaging. And that's the infrastructure part of the role of the government, if you like. There's also a very um, active uh, community around specifically uh, the, the blue technologies, right? And so a blue economy. And if you look at the example of Aquaspark, they started years and years ago um, funding innovators in the space of sustainable aquaculture. And they've been incredibly successful. I think this week there was an article um, where one of the companies was mentioned and they were literally going mainstream and their uh, sustainable feed is now used for providing food for shrimp and used in the by the largest grocery chain in the country, Albert Heim. So you see that happening and you see underneath a very lively ecosystem based on universities, um, research centers, organizations of all types. One I'm familiar with is Biomimicry NL that looks at innovation based and inspired by nature. Through them, I met uh, virtually the CEO of Finchulate, for example, and that's a company that has changed anti-fouling. So you don't have any more zinc and lead and copper-based anti-fouling. You have anti-fouling that is completely toxic, not damaging marine life in any way, and is inspired by the method with which sea urchins keep themselves free from little creatures, you know, latching on them. So I would say that that New Orleans has the same features, right? The same relationship with water, the same challenges, and really should try hard to become the same innovator because I believe that the potential is there. I want to remind our listeners that we will also have lots of links and reference information on the webpage and in the notes for the podcast. So you can go back and look at some of the companies and programs that Esme is referencing. Esme, are you seeing or do you see a lot of potential for cooperation between these initiatives that are going on in the Netherlands and other parts of the world and here on the Gulf Coast? 
I believe so. I think that Netherlands has exported their technology very, very actively and proactively all over the world, their water technology, right? They are building, um, I think, resilient floating uh, communities in, in some of the island countries. And I believe that especially in the domain of climate change, the degree of collaboration is unprecedented. So I'm sure that there are great opportunities of collaborations between countries and, and groups interested in the same resilient technologies. That's great to hear. So Esme, since you know a bit about the New Orleans area and the Gulf Coast area, is there any ideas that you think could accelerate the adoption of the energy transition or climate resiliency solutions on the Gulf Coast or for Gulf Coast communities? I think they would be certainly relevant for New Orleans as they are in many other cases, right? Um, certainly, a few of the things that are important is to make sure that some of the things that you create, create value locally and have a high degree of local engagement, right? So try to involve the local ecosystem, local inventors and so on. That's always useful. If we think about the development of um, renewable energy, we see that in many, in many geographies within the US, but also outside, in the whole of Europe, one of the big um, slowing factors is the ability of bringing together all the stakeholders in a timely fashion and making decisions in a timely fashion. So what happens is that sometimes the, um, the, the, the conversation around local views go on forever in circles. So I think that engaging early with the regulators, with the communities, with the industry, with the innovators, with a timeline in your hands though, so that all the parties commit to decision-making at a reasonable speed is very important to keep the momentum going, but also to keep the benefits in the place, right? Because if you can make decision a bit faster than the next community, you probably will get some advantages out of it. So in that context, what is it that your company, Atlas Transform, brings to the table in terms of an approach to empowering other would-be energy transition leaders? Yeah, so looking at um, what my company does, right, in the space of energy transition leadership, what is leadership in this context? Leadership is the ability and the capacity to lead. And if we look at what that can mean in the context of energy transition, it's, it's really very practical. And instead of making a long-term pledge and then having a literally a black hole from now to then where you have no idea of how to get there, but hope that somehow it will happen, leadership is really about filling that gap, filling that black hole. You understand your business, you understand how this energy transition changed the landscape, you look at the risks and opportunities, you make a plan, and you execute the plan. What this does, it fills that gap with a path and a step at a time you go from now to that goal without interruption. And that's what my company helps companies do. So it's quite different from setting long distance, long term goals only. And it's quite different from just compliance. Another thing that I learned in my first 10 months of operating is that there's not much out there for small companies like mine who are really serious about their own sustainability, adoption of circular economy principle and, and practices, and, and any way to report it. Most of the reporting is designed for big companies, 
makes a lot of sense, right? Because if we have limited resources, you want to make sure to cover the biggest contributors. But um, I have a lot of passion and I've started reaching out to some of the organization to develop simple tools for small companies so that they can also demonstrate their path and contribute to the larger journey in a visible way without becoming completely obscure. That's great, Esme. Sometimes it seems like the message to small companies and individuals is that the burden for some of these transitions and changes in behavior uh, fall on them as opposed to the big corporations. But it sounds like you do see roles for individuals and small companies in helping with energy transitions. I definitely do. I do see roles for absolutely everyone. And I think everyone who has gone through a a road simulation, right, will see that there's so much to do. Then it's about time we stop always pointing to someone else. So corporations will point to governments. Governments will point to corporations. People will point to governments as well. And everyone points their fingers to someone else to start. We all have to start. And I believe that we need leadership at all levels from the individual choices that we make to the governments and corporations making much larger decisions. Well, we certainly thank you for your leadership, Esme. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners that maybe I didn't get to today? I wish I was there in New Orleans right now. It's Mardi Gras period, and I really <laughs> miss my king cake. Yes, Mardi Gras just got started, so we're, we're getting into the season. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Esme. We really appreciate you coming on the Blue Economy Primer, and we'll look forward to staying appraised of your work and perhaps uh, doing an En-ROADS process with some of our listeners. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me, Greg. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for the Blue Economy Primer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please hit the like button. And be sure to visit our website at www.deepblue.academy where you can access important links and supporting information about today's podcast, send us your comments and or suggestions for potential guests and topics, get more information about our education and training programs, and join our mailing list, as well as make a much appreciated tax-deductible donation to support our nonprofit education and research initiatives. Thanks again to the Dan Lucas Memorial Foundation and the Pontchartrain Conservancy for their critical financial and institutional support. Until next time, when we meet again on the ever-expanding horizons of the blue economy.